Well, the year is uh, 325, some 13 years after Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, the edict or decree uh, that says that Christians will no longer be persecuted in the Roman Empire. And tonight we find ourselves in the rather large and prosperous Roman city of Nicaea. Now, just over a decade ago, uh, no one would have thought that this little city in northwestern Turkey would play such a pivotal role in the rise and spread of Christianity, but that, that's exactly what's happened. You see, just over a year ago, Constantine reunited the Roman Empire under a single throne, his throne, and as emperor and a recent convert to Christianity, he finds himself asking and needing to answer a number of very important theological questions. And so in the year 324, he issues a decree and he summons all of the Christian bishops from around the empire. Now, up until this point, uh, bishops would gather or meet in an ad hoc fashion. They gather here and there to solve local problems. And that was largely the result of persecution. I mean, it just wasn't safe for everyone to actually get together. And that's what makes this moment just so special. Because it's the first time that all of Christianity's leaders have gathered together. And it is a sight to see. Christian bishops, leaders from every city in the known world, meeting in one place for the very first time. And if you happen to be in this room, you probably notice this one thing in particular. These people are survivors. They're survivors of persecution And so in many ways, it looks more like a VA hospital than a church workers conference. And that's because these are the same men who were abused and mistreated for their faith. The same people that you would find being thrown in the Colosseum to lions. And so even though they come to discuss a number of very important theological questions, they come, as one historian writes, limping. Some with lost limbs, others with burns, still more with deep scars. And when they come, Constantine greets them, not as rebels, but as brothers. And it's at this council, the Council of Nicaea, that these bishops produce a document, a creed, a statement of faith about what it means to be a Christian. And it's about uh, this document and two others like it uh, that we turn our attention to tonight. And as we do, we ask uh, three questions. What do they say? What do they show us about ourselves and about our faith? And most importantly, how do they shape our lives as followers of Jesus? I was uh, probably about halfway through my vicarage, uh, my year-long internship in North Carolina, Uh, that an older gentleman in our congregation asked me the following question. He asked me, uh, why do we have a creed? I mean, it's not in the Bible, right? You know, as a question, it started a rather interesting conversation because uh, the second part of what he said, the part about the creed not being in the Bible, uh, is in a certain sense true. And uh, to explain what I mean, uh, it's helpful to know a thing or two about uh, the creed. You see, the first thing you should know about the creed is that we don't have just one creed. We have three creeds, and they go by the names uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And all three of these creeds are considered ecumenical, uh, which is another way of saying that they are accepted by virtually every Christian church and denomination. And yet each of these three creeds 
has a different story and with it a different reason for existence. So you've got the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and it receives its name from a 6th century church tradition that attributes it, uh, its writing, to the Apostles. And while this tradition and story is rather old, it's also likely a legend. Uh, but there's another reason that we call it the Apostles' Creed, and that's because it, it hands down to us the faith of the Apostles. And so its reason for existence is to tell us the Christian story. Uh, Its reason for existence is to tell us who God is. That our God, the God that we trust, that we believe, who loves us, created and sustains the world. That he sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins. And and his life, death, and resurrection promise us eternal life. And that, that he sends us the Holy Spirit to call us to faith and to strengthen us as followers of him. And so, when you go looking for a simple summary of the Christian faith, this is why so often we turn to the Apostles' Creed. So you got the Apostles' Creed, then you have the Nicene Creed, and this is the creed that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon. And and unlike the Apostles' Creed, we actually know a whole lot uh, about the circumstances that surround the Nicene Creed. You see, it was uh, started by those Christians in Nicaea, and those Christians, those bishops, they wrote the first two articles of the Nicene Creed, the article about God the Father and the article about God the Son. Uh, But then it's another group of Christians about 50 years later that go on to complete the Nicene Creed and write the article about the Holy Spirit and the way that God is at work in our lives through the work of the church. And its purpose, its reason for existence, is also rather simple. Its reason for existence is to tell us uh, that Jesus is God just like the Father is God. And so you got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and then you have the Athanasian Creed. And, and if you'll pardon the comparison, the Athanasian Creed, when you read it, is the creed that reads a little bit like a, a lawyer uh, was the one who wrote it. You see, it, uh, it was written about 100 years after the Nicene Creed in the year 500, and it's 660 words long. It takes several minutes just to read it out loud. And the reason that it exists is to explain to us, to lay out how the Trinity fits together. And so first, you've got these three creeds. And second, uh, it is mostly right to say that they do not uh, appear in the Bible. Uh, And that's because of the text of these three creeds. You won't find them anywhere in the Bible. Uh, But that's not to say that what they say isn't drawn from the Scriptures. Because it is. And this is why Christians of virtually every church and denomination agree on them. Now, all of this is uh, very interesting, uh, Christian history, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, But it might just make you wonder, what does this mean for me? Or uh, or to put it in another way, uh, how do these creeds, these ancient statements of faith, how do they shape us today as followers of Jesus? And, And to answer that question, we actually have to go back to Nicaea. You see, the year is uh, 325, and and Christianity is rather quickly becoming the religion of the Roman Empire. And like most grassroots movements that go mainstream, being formally recognized reveals a number of problems uh, that are going on within it. In the case of Christianity in the early 300s, the biggest problem they're facing 
is a problem that is being caused by a man named Arius. Arius is a, a bishop in Alexandria, and he has made the rather bold and audacious claim that Jesus isn't God. Now, this isn't to say uh, that Arius doesn't consider himself a Christian or that he doesn't love or follow Jesus. It's just to say that he does not think that Jesus is God. Instead, he thinks that Jesus uh, is the first and probably the most important of God's creations. And as you can probably imagine, this creates a whole bunch of problems for everyday Christians like you and me. And the reason why is very simple. Our thinking about God impacts our trusting in him. Now, to be clear, our our trusting is the thing that makes us Christians, but our, our thinking is important. Our thinking impacts the way that we trust in God. And and when you think that Jesus isn't God, it's going to impact the way you trust in him. Because if if Jesus isn't God, I mean, how can you trust that he isn't fallen and and sinful like like the rest of creation? Or, Or if Jesus isn't God, how can you trust that his death and his resurrection forgive your sins? And so this creates a series of problems for everyday Christians like you and me. And it creates a series of problems for Constantine. Because if his empire is going to be Christian, if it's it's going to follow Jesus, it needs to know what that means. It needs to have this matter settled. And so this is why Constantine does what he does. And it's worth pointing out that he, he doesn't go out and answer the question all by himself. Instead, he, he calls in a bunch of experts. He, he finds Christianity's bishops and he gathers them together from every corner of the Roman Empire and they wrestle. And they realize that while Arius is supporting his conclusion with a few passages of Scripture, the, the mass, vast majority of Scripture demonstrates the exact opposite that Jesus really is God, that he's God just like the Father. And all of this uh, brings us back to the question, how does the creed, how do the creeds shape us as followers of Jesus? And if you remember one thing from tonight, I, I hope it's this. The point of the creeds isn't just to tell us what to think. It's to show us when we've gone too far, to show us when, when our thinking might just compromise our trusting, to show us uh, when we're at risk of losing the gospel. You see, part of the way uh, that God made us is to be curious, to ask questions, uh, to, to wonder things about him. See, I'd imagine that most of us have questions about our faith, and, and these things are good things. It's, it's how God made us to be, to, to know him better. But the challenge we face is that even though we are new creations in Christ, even though Christ died on a cross to forgive our sins, even though our risen and ascended Lord is ruling and reigning over all creation, our lives are still impacted by sin. And one of the ways that sin impacts our lives is that our thinking, our thinking can compromise our trusting. And the creeds, they're, they're a way that God sustains our faith. The way that, that God shows us when our thinking might just have gone too far. 
You see, when the, when the creeds say that uh, Jesus is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, we're not saying that we, we fully comprehend what that means. We're saying that we know when we've gone too far. We know that we say, if, if we say that Jesus isn't God like the Father is God, we're at risk of losing the gospel. We're at risk of crossing this line where we find ourselves in danger. And so, uh, I like to say that the creeds, they don't remove the mystery from our faith. Instead, they work really hard to preserve our faith by giving us space where we can ask questions, where we can wonder things by God, but we know that our thinking isn't going to compromise our trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us, in the promises that God has made to us, and in what has been handed down to us by the apostles. Uh, now, in Massachusetts, uh, there is a relatively new church uh, that has been trying to do just this. Now, this church is called Sanctuary. It's founded back in 2010, and it's made its mission uh, to provide space for people to explore the faith and to get to know Jesus. And one of the ways that they've done this is called the fence. You see, uh, this congregation uh, got to start uh, worshiping on the back deck of one of its parishioners, and the fence is, is quite literally a fence, a white picket fence that surrounds the place where they worship. And on each picket of that fence, they've written a creed of sorts, uh, the things that they know about their faith and the one they worship. Things like uh, err on the side of love. And we know true love through Jesus and Jesus through the scriptures. And, and God's spirit is still active in this world. Now their creed is uh, by no means ecumenical. It's not something that we would read or say in church. Uh, and it doesn't tell you everything that there is to know about God. Uh, but no creed does tell you everything there is to know about God. Instead, it does what most creeds do what our creeds do. It creates space where we can explore our, our faith. And in this space, uh, the kind of space that creeds create, uh, it shows us who Jesus is, what God has done for us, how the Spirit is at work in our worlds, and it does it in a space and a way where our thinking doesn't compromise our trusting as we get to know Jesus, the one who forgives our sins and makes us righteous, the one who errs on the side of love, and the one whose spirit is still active in the world all around us. In the name of Jesus, amen.